On the morning of July 16, 1945, at 5.29 and 45 seconds, mountain time, the world changed forever. The world's first atomic bomb exploded at a test site in the New Mexico desert. To this day, the consequences for the residents of the contaminated area are still being covered up. In this episode of the Latino Business Report, you will learn how U.S. citizens, mostly Latinos, have been forgotten and betrayed. Today, 77 years later, our own government is still suppressing and covering up the consequences for the residents of New Mexico and El Paso. Welcome to the Latino Business Report. This podcast covers business, people, and issues of the day from a Latino perspective. The Latino Business Report is brought to you by TAMAC, the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. TAMAC is the leading Hispanic business organization in Texas since 1975. Now for your host, J.R. Gonzalez. Thank you for joining us and welcome to another episode. Today's guests are going to be Tina Cordova and Paul Pino. Tina is the co-founder of the Tula Rosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, and Paul is uh, one of the members of that consortium and on the steering committee. Paul, Tina, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, JR, for inviting us. Well, you know, I, I invited you because this is a subject that a lot of people don't know about. I didn't know about this until Tina and I started talking to you and Paul, we started having conversations, which caused me to do some research. And then once I did some of the research and just found out some of the there's no other way to say it, but the atrocities that are happening to our own community, our own people right here in the United States. I thought, let's see if we can at least do a podcast on this and bring it to a few more people. I know you've been very active in publicizing and getting the word out, but this is something that happened over 75 years ago, about 77 years ago, a wrong that hasn't been righted yet. So Tina, can you kind of start off and give us a little bit of background about your organization and, and what's going on? So JR, 77 years ago, uh, the government tested the first nuclear device in the desert of South Central New Mexico at a place called the Trinity Site. And for 17 years now, the TBDC, Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, has been working to bring attention to the negative health effects suffered by the people of New Mexico who lived adjacent to, to, adjacent to the test site. We know from census data that there were about 15,000 men, women, and children living within a 50-mile radius to the test site. And so, you know, our work has always been to bring attention to the fact that people were affected, that American citizens who pledge allegiance to the flag, just like everybody else, and pay taxes, were affected by this nuclear device that was essentially detonated in our backyard. The government has never returned to assess the damage that was done either to us as human beings or to our, to our environment that we greatly depend on here in the state of New Mexico. And ultimately what we've been working on is to be included in a fund that was set up 32 years ago called the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act or RECA for short, that pays partial restitution to what are called downwinders from other states. Downwinders essentially describes people that live in the vicinity of test sites. Uh, after Trinity, our government did testing in the Pacific Islands and then in the state of Nevada. That's basically who our organization is. 
the test site was where in Trinity? It was it was the Manhattan Project, the first experimental explosion of a, of a, a nuclear device. Correct? Yeah, but the Manhattan Project was the top secret project uh, started by Roosevelt, but Roosevelt died, and then Truman took over, and it was so top secret, Jr., that our own members of Congress did not know about it. The Manhattan Manhattan Project uh, was actually undertaken without knowledge uh, to our members of Congress. Our Congress knew nothing about it. It was essentially developed by the president because the president uh, believed that the Germans were pursuing the development of a nuclear device. And so to actually uh, match their efforts to develop something like this, we undertook this project. The truth was the Germans were not developing a nuclear device, and we eventually found out that that was true when the Germans surrendered during World War II in um, around March, I think it was, of 1944. But we continued with the program because billions of dollars had already been spent on the Manhattan Project. And they were not going to, the president and General Groves, who was a member of the army and dedicated to this project, they were not going to throw away the $2 billion and they were going to see this project through no matter what. Let's let's rewind a little bit, Tina. Um, the actual test site was in New Mexico. And it happened, the first detonation of a nuclear bomb happened July 16th, 1945. And that's at 5.30 in the morning when that thing was detonated. And what happened that morning, that early morning that people were asleep, just getting up, the sun hadn't come up, there had been a rainstorm the night before, the air was clean and fresh, and then at 5.30 a.m., boom. Well, Jr. first of all, one of the things we have to recognize about 1945 is that in the desert of New Mexico, the temperatures were really, really high in July. But it is our rainy season, and you're right. There was a rainstorm that preceded the detonation. They were going to detonate that bomb that day, no matter what, because Truman was in Potsdam meeting with Stalin, and he wanted to be able to communicate to Stalin that we had this now ever-powerful you know, weapon of mass destruction. And so they were going to detonate that bomb no matter what, even though meteorologists and physicians assigned to the test said, this is not going to go well. This is not going to go, this is not going to be good. We're going to, we're going to overexpose people to radiation. And they were making bets on whether they would ignite the atmosphere. That's how much they didn't know about exactly what was going to happen. The bomb produced more light and more heat than the sun. So what people have told me throughout the many years that I've been doing this work that were alive at the time, some of them said we were already awake because we were hardworking individuals. It was the summertime. We were outside working in the fields, harvesting, you know, et cetera. And besides, it was kind of warm and we got up early, et cetera. We didn't have air conditioning. Uh, We were sleeping out on our porches. Many people have told me we were outside sleeping because it was cooler outside. They experienced something that they never were able to quite describe, except that they thought it was the end of the world. And you can just imagine experiencing something that produces more heat and more light than the sun. And this massive explosion that rocked buildings hundreds of miles away, broke 
broke windows, uh, knocked things out of cabinets, knocked people out of bed, physically knocked people out of their beds. They thought it was the end of the world. The, the Many people told me we dropped to our knees and started praying the rosary. We thought it was the end of the world and no way to know what it was. Was there any casualties, any direct casualties because of the explosion that on, during that test? There were no immediate casualties. And part of the reason I believe there were no immediate casualties is because they detonated the bomb on a tower 100 feet off the ground, which instead of producing destruction, actually produced massive fallout. So what they learned was to produce destruction like what they wanted in Japan, they then detonated those bombs at 1,600 and 1,800 feet respectively in Japan, which meant that they produced massive destruction and very little fallout. I've always said if they would have detonated the bomb at Trinity at 1,600 or 1,800 feet off the ground, people would have died. Ranching families that lived within that 12-mile radius, and there were many, those people would have likely died. Wow. Um, Paul, your family has lived in New Mexico for quite a while now. What were some of the experiences of your family members during that time, and what are some of the experiences they're having today? Yeah, I grew up on, a, on our family ranch, a little bit more than 40 miles from ground zero from the Trinity test. That's where the bomb was fine. The first nuclear bomb was ever exploded. And it's have a, had a devastating effect, effect on our family. <clears throat> my, my mom, two of my sisters, and my brother were living at the ranch at the time. Of, of those four people, my mother suffered from different types of cancer throughout her life, and she finally died an agonizing death once they discovered cancer in her bones. Um, so she died of cancer. My big brother, who was a tremendous athlete, worked for the government all his life and stuff like that. He died of a rare form of stomach cancer and stomach cancer is, is covered, you know, for people that get cancer in other States like Nevada, Arizona, and Utah, you know, through the, through the radiation exposure compensation act. My, one of my sisters <clears throat> um, had to have her thyroid removed because she had thyroid cancer. And so now she has to take all kinds of pills and stuff like that to regulate her, you know, do what the thyroid used to do, you know, and uh, regulate your mood and your drive and your in your drive for life and all that stuff and your energy levels. And my other sister that was alive at the time has had brain tumors removed actually down in El Paso um, twice. So it was 100% of, of my family was affected directly. And my dad happened to not be in the area at the time. He was working for the United States government as a vaquero in Mexico, rounding up cows for to fight hoof and mouth disease or something. And he he never did get cancer. So there's direct there's probably a direct correlation between that being exposed to the plutonium in that test and cancer today. You know, it absolutely looks like it because even today there's no pollution in Carisoso, you know? And in 1945, you, there might not have been a cleaner place in the world, you know, no air pollution, no noise pollution, no light pollution, no water pollution, no kind of pollution at all. And all these family members getting cancer, that doesn't make any sense. The only toxin that there was there was radiation. Paul, now you're, um, you're, you're an educated man. You've, your entire family and your whole life has been in New Mexico. When did you find out about this? When did you find out? the devastation and the and the problems that this test caused 
I am embarrassed to tell you, I was a teacher and I taught Carrizozo, I mean, Carrizozo history. <laughs> I taught New Mexico history and, uh, and United States history. And, and the government did such a good of obscuring the truth. You know, they started out with a lie. You know, they said it was an ammunition dump that had blown up. And that, and, and that lie uh, was perpetuated so well that I didn't know it until until probably about five or six years ago when I attended a Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium information meeting. And I saw, ran into a bunch of people there from Carrizoso that I hadn't seen for years and relatives from close by that had terrible bouts with cancer. And so, yeah, I learned about it because of Tina and her cohorts. Yeah, I felt bad for my students because I'd, I'd already had been done with my teaching career and I taught them wrong. You know, I showed them a film and it was a propaganda film. I found out later, you know, it even, it had pictures of cattle trucks going to Carisoso. It had, it had a lot of pictures of the bomb and bombs and stuff. And it says, and it said cattle trucks were dispensed to the village of Carrizozo in case they had to evacuate the population. I, I told, yelled at my students, listen, 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 that's my hometown. And then they said, but, the winds were favorable, and so they didn't have to to evacuate Carisoso. And I went like, ah, oh, cool! I learned something, and you know, while teaching history, and it turned out to not be true, man. The Geiger counters went off scale in Carisoso, off scale. Tina, uh, obviously, Paul has learned about this through your your efforts of co-founding this this consortium. But after the explosion, and and Paul alluded to it, they they explained it several different ways, and then plutonium. I mean, they use close to 10 pounds of plutonium, if, if, if I recall. And then a plutonium half-life is, Tina, do you recall what half-life of plutonium is? Yeah, the half-life of plutonium is 24,000 years, JR. And it's just one of the radioactive isotopes that re is released when they detonate an atomic 24,000 years half-life. 24,000 years. <laughs> so when this bomb went off, I was, I was doing some prep and research on this before the, the podcast, that some people just saw snow, like the ash was falling from the sky uh, like snow. And people were getting that snow, playing in it, and rubbing it on their face and, and their bodies and playing. And uh, one particular article I read was where there was a, a girl's dance camp. And the dance, the, the, they were waking up, woken up, says, hey, it's as bright as day. This warm snow is coming down. The girls were playing in the snow. And all of them, with the exception of one, all died before the age of 30 due to the radiation exposure. Now, back in 1945, there wasn't, as you said, there wasn't air conditioning. I mean, there was lakes. And as this plutonium, this, this radioactive ash would fall into the, into the drinking water, into the streams, into the food sources. I mean, devastating. How did the government keep this secret for so long, Tina? Well, the government's been great at suppressing the story. They actually said then, and they con continue to say today, that the area was remote and uninhabited and no one lived there. Uh, I always say we were expendable. They didn't care one way or the other. We were, we were Native Americans and Mexicanos that have lived here for hundreds if not thousands of years. The preponderance of people in New Mexico that were affected by this were, were just that, Native Americans and Mexicanos. We are the only minority majority state in the union uh, the story that you sort of just synopsized is about a woman named Barbara Kent from El Paso, Texas. 
And I always say we'll never fully know how many people from Texas were in New Mexico that day and exposed to radiation. And Barbara's story is profound because she survived. She's had three cancers, three miscarriages. All of her daughters have had cancer. Her brother had a brain tumor. Her mother had a brain tumor. And they're the ones that took her to camp and spent the night that night and experienced the blast the next day alongside of her. And that's just not normal, JR. That is not normal. And Barbara always talks about how as the ash fell from the sky, the warm ash that they thought was snow in July, and they thought, how odd. She says she remembers they were sticking their tongues out. The ash would fall on their tongue, and it was warm, and they thought it was the most, it was strange. It was the strangest thing ever. They were rubbing it on their bodies, their faces. Barbara had a swath of hair along her forehead that turned white that day, never to return to its normal color. Um, you know, Barbara is just one of those people from Texas that happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and suffered the consequences along with those of us in New Mexico who who also have suffered greatly as a result of our government keeping it secret. So they've never returned, JR. They've never come back to assess the environmental damage, much less the damage to human health. And, um, you know, we've been waiting 77 years for our government to recognize that we were enlisted into service without consent or knowledge. And we didn't understand what exposure to radiation meant anyway. Eventually they admitted that the test at Trinity was a nuclear device similar to what was detonated at Japan, but they never said, take care of this or that or the other. And they never evacuated anyone. Paul mentioned that the Geiger counters went off the charts in Carrizozo and they did make a very, um, what I would call a very underestimated plan to evacuate some people in cattle trucks, by the way, because of course, if you're gonna evacuate people, let's do it in cattle trucks. But they set a limit at which they would evacuate people. And then when they reached that limit in Carrizozo, they doubled it. And when it reached that limit, they doubled it again. And then they finally told the guys that were there with the rudimentary Geiger counters, leave it's not safe for you. But they never told to Paul's family or any other family, Wow, you need to get out of town. Now, Tina, I know your family also has a history of, of cancer. Would you mind sharing that with, with us a little bit? I had two great grandfathers uh, living in Tularosa, which is about 45 miles the way the crows fly from the Trinity test site. And actually, Tularosa is one of the entry points to the Trinity test site. There is a roadway that goes through Tula Rosa and, and accesses the Trinity site. When they built the Trinity site, because they knew they would have to have ex escape routes, they actually built several roads in and out of there. And one of them is through the town that I grew up in. My two great grandfathers that were alive at the time of the test, both died in 1955, 10 years later, of what they called stomach cancer. But there were no medical facilities and no one had ever heard the word cancer. They gave them morphine, sent them home to die. It was horrific, JR, because not only did people not know what cancer was because they'd never heard of it, they thought you could catch it. So my mom always told me and my dad always told me that my great-grandfathers, people didn't want to be around them. They were afraid that if they got too close to them, they might get the cancer. from them. And it was horrific what they suffered. Both of my grandmothers had cancer. My dad died after having three different cancers that he didn't have risk factors for. 
as an example, my dad didn't drink alcohol, didn't smoke tobacco, didn't use chewing tobacco, um, and had no viruses, but he developed two uh, oral cancers, one at the base of his tongue, and then eight years later, another cancer at the front of his tongue, not related to each other, it wasn't metastatic, they knew that on a cellular level, and in between those two cancers, he got prostate cancer. And then when I was 39 years old, literally at the height of my career, because I'm a business owner, um, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And the first thing they asked me was, when were you exposed to radiation? Did you ever work with radioactive isotopes? Uh, Do you ever have a lot of x-rays? I said, no, no, and no, but I grew up in a town adjacent to the Trinity test site. Right now, my sister is being evaluated for thyroid cancer for possibly having thyroid cancer. She's recently been treated multiple times for skin cancer. My dad's older sister, who's 83, just went through radiation treatment for breast cancer. No woman at that age should have to go through that. My mom's sister, my mom's younger sister, uh, she died from breast cancer. Uh, and my family has been somewhat spared. I, I, I know families where 100% of the people in the family the mother, the father, and all the children have had cancer. And this is not unusual. We've documented thousands of cases. With all these deaths and all this documentation, what is the problem? Why isn't the government acknowledging and doing something about this? I think there was a time when it was really difficult for our government to acknowledge that in their haste to um, take a bomb to Japan, they actually bombed American citizens. They actually detonated a bomb adjacent to where American citizens lived and poisoned their own people. I think that there was that problem. We are often told, JR, that it's gonna cost too much to add us to the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which does nothing but add insult to the injury of what we've been through. We bury our loved ones on a regular basis and then someone else is diagnosed. You're saying to be added to the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Who benefits from that now? Does anybody? Oh, yeah. The fund has been in place for 32 years. It's paid $2.5 billion to about 38,000 claimants. There are claimants that live downwind of only the Nevada test site. So let me give you an example. El Paso is 130 miles from Trinity. Carrizozo 40 miles from Trinity, Tularosa, 45 miles from Trinity. They pay people restitution that live in Winslow, Arizona, 259 miles from the Nevada test site. Okay. There's no equity in that, JR. There's no justice in that. When I talk about this, I want to make sure I'm, I'm clear on this. I also believe that El Paso County needs to be added to the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act and considered um, to be added, because I truly believe that people who lived in El Paso County at the time of Trinity were negatively affected. So people who live downwind of the Nevada test site have been compensated. The people of New Mexico were no, not only downwind of the, the Trinity test, we were downwind of the 100 above ground nuclear tests done at Nevada as well, and that's very well documented. They had monitoring stations in New Mexico to monitor the fallout from Nevada, and we consistently were dosed. High levels of radiation are dangerous, but chronic low-level exposure to radiation is just as dangerous. And so we were downwind of Trinity and Nevada, never included. 
So people who live 250 miles away in Nevada have been compensated. Their medical bills and their treatments and their health care has been taken care of through this act. But yet people and descendants that lived as close as 40 miles away, nothing. Exactly. Exactly. There's no justice in that. And I think most people understand that. And let me tell you something else to address the idea that it's going to cost too much. You know, right now we're appealing. Uh, well, I, I want to circle back to something, but let me tell you about the cost. $2.5 billion have been paid out in 32 years. The U.S. government spends $50 billion annually maintaining their nuclear arsenal, putting their nuclear arsenal to bed every night. Just maintaining our arsenal, not building up anything, not producing new plutonium pits, not doing any of that, just maintaining what we have, $50 billion. And $2.5 billion is less than a percentage of that spent over 32 years. When did it become, when did it, be, it become okay in our country to turn your back on people who were harmed of no fault of their own, but take care of a hunk of metal and make sure that it gets maintained every year adequately. It, it, it's not, it, it, there is no justice. There is no uh, equity in the program. Uh, it's time. And, and you know what? Let me say something else, JR. Once people know this history, if they remain complacent and they don't join with us in this fight for justice, they're complicit in the whole thing. They're absolutely complicit in the whole thing. You become part of the injustice that was, was done to us. We're, we're human beings. We pay taxes. Like I said earlier, we pledge allegiance to the same flag. And so, and, and let me mention something else that's important. New Mexico was the largest producer of uranium because obviously uranium was necessary for this process to build nuclear weapons. Uranium is necessary. New Mexico is the largest producer of uranium. We had 500 uranium mines. They extracted 32 million tons of uranium and walked away from those mines. Those mines all exist on native lands, the Navajo Nation, Laguna, and Acoma Pueblo, the largest open pit mine any place in the world, Laguna Pueblo, 60 miles west of Albuquerque, where people still live adjacent to this mine, where the government has never come back to remediate or abate these mines. Texas is the second largest producer of uranium. The fund, RECA fund, also addresses what are called the pre-1971 uranium miners. So in Texas, you have people that I know are benefiting from RECA, and they should. But our government, in their great brilliance, decided that when uranium became commercially available for nuclear plants and, and, and other things in 1971, they would no longer take care of people who were made sick by that industry. Well, you also in Texas have what are called post-71 uranium miners, okay? Those people will directly benefit if this program gets extended and amended the way that we're working for that and the way that we're fighting for that. We're appealing to your two senators, Senator Cornyn and, and Senator Cruz, to get on board, to co-sponsor these bills. It's Senate Bill 2798. We need them. We desperately need them. They need to support this because people in Texas are directly affected. Representative Escobar 
from El Paso as a co-signer, and there are others from Texas that are co-signers. Um, and we just, we need the, the congressional delegation from Texas 100% to get on board with this. We especially need Senator Cornyn and Senator Cruz. Hey, um, <clears throat> could I interject something here? I recently saw a, a newspaper article and they said that people in Texas have been water skiing in ponds, which are abandoned uranium mines. You know, so we share a lot of the same problems. Wow. Tina, you know, when you're, you're talking about the, um, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, and we're talking about benefits, what kind of benefits, that, for those that qualify, what kind of benefits are they receiving? Are they receiving some sort of restitution monetarily? Is it, is it uh, access to health care? What, what do they receive under this Compensation Act? Well, first of all, under the Compensation Act, uh, if you are a uranium miner, you are given a one-time payment of what they call partial restitution, and it's $100,000, and you receive health care coverage. If you're a downwinder, you receive a one-time payment of partial restitution of $50,000. So the new bills that have been introduced have been introduced with different provisions to update the program to meet today's requirements of a cancer diagnosis. And what that means is the new bills have a partial restitution payment of $150,000 across the board, and you can apply on behalf of a deceased loved one. There are about 20 what they call compensable cancers. And then you would receive healthcare coverage, JR. And what I always say is, the partial restitution will be transformative for families, and I'll explain why I say that. But the health care coverage will mean the difference between life and death for many people. If you live in rural parts of New Mexico, there are no health care facilities where you live. So you always have to travel for health care and to be treated for cancer. A lot of people in New Mexico travel to Texas to receive that treatment. They travel to El Paso and to MD Anderson in Houston. And I know this because we've been collecting health surveys for 15 years and we ask the question. And so this is an economic uh, development program. This is absolutely an economic development program. If all of a sudden people have everything they need when they're made sick to take care of their health, it actually produces revenue for the healthcare industry and businesses develop out of that. People, people, there's more jobs for people that work in the industry. There's more money to go into that industry. And it's an economic development program. If you give people in a family $150,000 and there's several people that might receive that, those people are going to put that money right back into the economy. They're going to use that money to, I don't know, update their house, put a new roof on, maybe go on a vacation maybe put a child through college, all the things they've never been able to do. I've known people that are so strapped at the end of their life because of the cost of cancer treatment that they haven't even been able to put in the necessary uh, items in their home to accommodate their disabilities, like the use of a wheelchair. And it's just, it's pathetic, JR, because it robs people's lives uh, their their economic it 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 literally straps people with this huge economic burden, and 
the recipients, I always say the beneficiaries of all this are our children. Our children are the ones that suffer because they don't have, uh, they don't have the economic, their families don't have the economic means for taking care of them and helping them to advance the way other children have access to, uh, you know, access to that. What I can't believe, Tina, is that some people are actually receiving benefits and that necessary care, and other people who are much closer but happen to be people of color, primarily, aren't getting it. Hey, Tina, tell them, tell them how that, those benefits stop right exactly at the New Mexico-Arizona line. Well, that's Paul's story. Paul's <laughs> the one that pointed out long ago that the benefits stop right at the Arizona-New Mexico border. And I always say, um, as if there exists a lead curtain there that somehow offers us protection. So you can live five feet into Arizona and you get taken care of, but live five feet into New Mexico and you're not. That's a delta of 10 feet. You can, you know, somebody want to explain to me how we make that distinction? You know, a 10 foot difference in distance protects somebody versus somebody else. And, you know, JR, let's just look at the states where coverage is received. It's parts of Nevada, Arizona, and Utah. The preponderance of people who've received the partial restitution are not people of color. So it begs the question, right? You have to ask yourself, has there been a level of environmental racism associated with the fact that the people of New Mexico have been left out? And that you know, we have all these uranium miners who are native people who are also left out. And so, you know, we have to ask ourselves hard questions like that when we take a look at this. Paul and I are, are do, we do this work, JR, because we have children and grandchildren. And Paul already has seen some of the disease process manifest in his own children. I fortunately have not, but I worry about it all the time. It's a it's a constant worry. We we say around here uh, that we don't ask if we're going to get cancer. We ask when it's our turn because everybody around us has had cancer and has died from that. Now, this um, Compensation Act, Tina, it's about to it's about to sunset, and it, I believe it's going to sunset in in uh, July of twenty twenty two. That's correct. Tina, could you please explain what happens if this were if this act were to sunset? Well, when they originally set the bill up in 1990, they put a sunset clause, which says that the bill will expire in July of 2022. So that expires, that, that means no more help. That means the, the, the program is dead, done, gone, finished. And that means we'll never, we'll never see the benefit of the program and the people in New Mexico and other places because the, the bills that are in Congress now under consideration We'll add the people of Guam in the Pacific Islands where they tested some of the very largest nuclear devices they ever tested in the lagoons there uh, and damaged, obviously, those islands. Um, and then they did the testing in Nevada, but they didn't include all the states that were downwind of Nevada, like Montana and Idaho and Colorado. And so the new bill would extend compensation to those places as well. It does have a qualification period, which says you had to have lived in one of these states. Uh, in New Mexico, it'll start in 1945, obviously, with Trinity and extend through 1962. 
And in these other states, it, it actually coincides with when the testing started there. And so, and, and then ending in 1962 when they did the last above ground test at uh, Nevada. So we have multiple things happening here. Not only the, the horrific atrocity that was committed on American citizens, and I know it was a time of war, and I know the argument can be made, you know, it was the patriotic thing to do. I mean, you can make that argument, but after the fact, after the fact and recognizing what is going on and to not do anything about it is just unbelievable. So for 77 years, people in New Mexico have been dealing with this, trying to get added for the past several decades, trying to get added to the um, Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. And that act is about to expire later on this year. So step one, I guess it's to keep the to, to not let it sunset, to renew it. And then t- step two is to get people to recognize that parts of Texas and all of New Mexico and that lead curtain does not exist, it does not, shouldn't be there at the, at the Nevada border, to get people some of the benefits and some of the medical care and attention they need so we can hopefully stop this ongoing generational people dying of cancer. Does that kind of sum it up? Absolutely true. If there's listeners out there right now that would be interested in, I mean, we're going to post in the notes. If you're listening, go to the notes on this on this podcast. We'll have uh, information to the um, Downwinder site. We'll also have some other information. But Tina, what what can we do? What can people do? What can I do? Well, first of all, you all live in a state where there are two senators that serve on the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. And the Senate Judiciary Committee is incredibly important to the passage of this bill. And we need Senator Cornyn and Senator Cruz to sign on as co-sponsors. And they can add an amendment, by the way, to include El Paso County. And I believe that that should happen as well. But if for no other reason than that there are uranium mines still active in Texas, then Senator Cornyn and Senator Cruz should support this. Everybody in Texas needs to call Senator Cruz's office and Senator Cornyn's office and say, we want you to support Senate Bill 2798 and bring justice to the people who were harmed during the development of nuclear weapons by our country. That's a start. They can also contact their members of the House of Representatives. Um, There are several, like I said, that um, have yet to sign on. The bill in the House has incredible bipartisan support. It passed the House Judiciary uh, Committee with a vote of 25 to 8. And as I recall, there were members of the Texas delegation that voted in favor of it. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, for example, I I think Gomert. um, You know, there, there were members of the Texas delegation that support this, When I testified in the House Judiciary Committee, Sheila Jackson Lee asked me some incredible questions. And the thing that that touched me the most, though, was that she apologized for the loss of my father. And I thought, you know, how often does a member of Congress recognize that mistakes have been made by our country and then apologize to you for something so personal like the loss of your father? Um, It touched my heart. She she will forever, uh, I will hold her forever in a special place because of that. Um, And so people need to reach out to their members of Congress. The House bill is House Bill 5338, 5338. 
And everybody just needs to realize that, like I said earlier, it's been an economic drain on families and communities. But if we pass this bill, it will be transformative for families and communities, and it will drive the economy. And some of that will happen for hospitals and medical facilities in Texas because the way because of the way New Mexicans utilize those facilities to receive treatment. Well, we're definitely going to, like I said, put this in the podcast notes and on our Facebook page and, of course, on our website and to see if we can't drive a few more people into supporting this very, very important legislation. Before we go, Paul, um, I know that uh, you're actively involved. You're you're a new soldier into Tina's army here of information and movement. Um, any any closing thoughts you, you would have or want to share with the audience? Yes. <clears throat> I want to thank you so much for inviting us to Texas. <clears throat> you know, like our our states are so similar, man. And, and there's not a lot of states that, that have the same advantages and the same beauty and and things that Texas and New Mex- Mexico do. We share so many things together. Uh, whenever <clears throat> we, I was living at the ranch, we'd go and get supplies once or twice a year, you know, uh, to, to last us the whole year and where we'd go to, to do our shopping would be El Paso, you know? And so we're really tied together and, it, and it's been, and I'm so glad to be speaking to the, to the people of Texas. So thank you so much, JR. Paul, thank you. And thank you for your hard work. And just so you know, this, uh, this podcast is Texas based. However, it is definitely worldwide. We have some followers in Mexico, right. we have some in Europe. We even have a, a group of people up in, uh, in Canada that follow us quite often. Still haven't figured that one out, but they're following us. So um, thank you very much for that and continue the hard work. And and I'm going to get a later on follow-up with both of you. We may do another podcast at a later date to see how this comes along, getting closer to the um, the sunset date. But uh, by all means, um, Tina, any closing thoughts or any call to action that you would like to, to give before we sign off? Well, I want to thank you, JR. Uh, your friendship is very important to me and has been for a very long time. We learned what we know about advocacy working together at the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And I'm very grateful for that experience and to have shared that with you. Uh, I also want to say that because you do have people who listen from all parts of the United States and other parts of the world, those people too can join with us. They also have members of Congress that they can reach out to. So for anyone who's listening, and I don't care if you're in Kansas, or Massachusetts, you have somebody that represents you in Congress and every single one of those people is important to us. And if you believe that we have been uh, treated unfairly and now you know the story and you're motivated to help us, please make those calls. The last thing I'll say is we have an amazing website where people can go read stories that we've posted there that people have shared with us. Uh, they can get updates there. They can find out everything they'll ever want to know about events we've held, etc. That website address is www.trinitydownwinders, plural, trinitydownwinders.com. On this website, is there a sample letter or something that people can just come in, download and sign and send off to their congressmen or senators? Yes, there's form, there's form letters there. There's also, also health surveys, JR, because... People have lived in New Mexico and moved other places in in the world. And there's a health survey they can fill out. They can download the health survey, fill it out and send it to us. And one last thing, 
you know, Paul mentioned about how we share an interesting history with Texas, New Mexico does. We also share a very porous border on our eastern border, your western border, and on our southern border. And we we have people that live between both states all the time. And I know that there's people in Texas that were affected because they lived here or were here that summer um, or have been here. And, and we want those people to join with us. We want them to identify themselves to us and join with us. The reason for collecting the health surveys is we have a database and we fully intend to contact every single person once the bill is passed. And we fully intend to help each one of them fill out the paperwork so that they can qualify for the restitution. And by the way, it was President Bush, the first President Bush, that signed the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act into law. And when he did that, he basically acknowledged that it doesn't matter whether people can prove or not that that's how they got cancer. Just the idea that it may have happened from that was enough for him. And he said, this is just partial, partial restitution for the sacrifice and suffering that people have endured. And that's how we look at it. It's just partial restitution for the sacrifice and suffering that we've all endured for so many, many years. Tina, Paul, thank you so very much for being on the podcast and bless you for the work that you're doing. You're not only educating people, but you're advocating for those who can't advocate for themselves. Those that have these cancers, those that are dying, and those that have already passed because of this horrific act that occurred 77 years ago and will continue with a half-life of 24,000 years. I mean, this problem is going to be around for a while. And after a nuclear explosion, I mean, come on, radiation fallout and poisoning does not stop at state lines or different borders. The fact that El Paso is involved, parts of Texas, and we have two state state centers, I, for one, I'm going to get on the phone, not only call the office, send emails, but also write a letter to the congressman asking them to support the Compensation Act and do not let it sunset and do what we can to include El Paso and parts of Texas and other people and definitely give you guys the recognition that you deserve and the medical help and treatment that you and your family members need. So thank you for being on the show. If you like the show, go ahead and like us. You can follow us. My name is J.R. Gonzalez. I've been your host and you've been listening to the Latino Business Report.